out of the hospitals and get rid of this virus. Um, Dr. Cho, do you have any questions for Asana? No, actually, I'd just like to say thank you to you and everyone else who's been on the front lines. I, I know this is your job, but this is your job times 500. As you all said earlier, this is unprecedented. So we're just so appreciative of all you all have done. Keep yourself going. Well, for me, um, I know when my breaking point, you know, I know when I'm too tired. And um, But I think what happens is everybody knows their limits, especially nurses, especially your respiratory therapists. Everybody knows their limits and our doctors. They all know, okay, I got to rejuvenate. I got to go home and rest and eat, and then I'll be healthier to go back and then help more. Um, but even that being said, the emotional, the mental stress is really, you know, you think about a war. Well, this is a, a epidemic war that we're in. And so here we are again. You know, we didn't want to be back here, but here we are. And I think everybody's doing their best to make sure that every single person survives this. But that takes a lot. You know, that takes a lot of um, manpower from all of our hospitals to, especially in the ICU. And then we also have those step-down units that when a patient leaves the ICU, they don't just go home. Then they go to like another floor and then they recover and then they go home. So it's a lot on every individual that's working inside the hospital. And um, I work in a clinic and right now my goal with me and my team, my leaders, um, we, from my senior VP to my VP, we're all really focused on getting the vaccines and everybody's arms. And so when we started our mobile unit vaccine clinic March of 2020, we uh, were able to vaccinate over 1,500 um, folks here in the city of Columbus within months. And then when we heard about the Hersher grant from the government um, wanting to have those unique bright spots in our country, who's doing vaccines and what are they doing uniquely that makes sure everybody has access to vaccines? So we applied for it. And um, there was 127 different entities in the country that was um, awarded this money. Ohio Health, we were awarded the highest level at $1 million. So with that, we get to now double our calls. Um, we're hoping that we can vaccinate with one mobile unit now. We're hoping to vaccinate 100 people a week, if not more. And then um, we also, so we, we have clinics Monday through Friday. We have clinics on Saturdays. So I want to make sure I email you those all of those different sites and the times. We are walk-ins, so they don't have to have an appointment. And um, of course, the vaccine's free. Tell us what were the criteria for the grant that you received? Um, the criteria, first of all, there was, it was like a three-pronged criteria. We, of course, do all three. It was marketing you know, the vaccine, that was a criteria. How are you gonna market it? What's your education techniques? How are you gonna educate? Who are you gonna educate? How are you gonna educate? And then the final one was, can you vaccinate? Are you a program that can vaccinate? So we can do all three and we are doing all three. And so when we wrote the proposal, the good thing for Ohio Health is we were already doing it. We've been doing it since, um, you know, March. So that really helped 
with the, um, you know, writing of the program. We also have a wonderful grant writer at Ohio Health. So she did a phenomenal job. I have to give her a lot of uh, kudos for how well she wrote the grant. It's all depends upon how do you tell your story and do you meet the criteria that the government's looking for. So it was um, my first call with her show was interesting. I got to hear from people. Um, another place in Ohio was in the Toledo area. I got to hear from them. And then um, I heard folks from California, from all over the country who, some folks are just doing the education piece, piece, boots on the ground, getting out to the neighborhoods, informing people, like you said earlier, making sure that people are educated in the right way. And then some people are doing all three, and we are fortunate to be able to do marketing, education, and um, administer the vaccine. I have to ask you this. Are black people stepping up the way they should? Stepping up in which way? Getting vaccinated. Oh, getting vaccinated. Well, I don't have data on that. I don't have a research data on that. Observation. However, observation, yes. Um, I will tell you, I have been all over. I've been as far as Athens in Nelsonville. I've been really here in the inner city. It's, um, it's all races. And I don't understand, and I don't really try to, I try to just um, give as much education as possible. However, it's not, I don't want people to think it's just one race. There is significant amount of African Americans who are saying no. I think that um, sometimes we look at the media and we, we get boxed into certain people. No, it's, it's, all, it's all people. And so we approach everyone at the same as far as, okay, we understand you don't want it. Just take this information. Here's our number. Please call us. And actually, we've had people call us the next day and say, okay, where are you? Maybe they, you know, they went home, thought about it, talked to other loved ones maybe. But this, um, what we're facing now, we know is more contagious. We know that. Yes, this Delta. This Delta, yes. It's more contagious. It's, um, I can just give you a personal note. Um, I had a, a loved one just got discharged from the hospital four days ago, and she's young, and she was vaccinated, and she was very, very sick. She could not even talk to me. She was able to text me and tell me what was going on with her while she was in the hospital. So we were all very scared. Um, luckily, they, they did some things um, that saved her life in the hospital. And so she's home now, but she's extremely weak. And um, she said that even though even though she got the vaccine, she said to me, and this is a text she said to me, she said, if I had not got the vaccine, I think I would have died. Because this, just because you get the vaccine, if you have other health conditions, that can make it worse, I would assume. Well, auto, we know autoimmune. Um, so that's why we're worried about pregnant pregnant women because when they get pregnant, you know, your immune system changes. Anybody who has autoimmune problems or diseases, yes. That's why right now you saw that Walgreens and CVS came out two weeks ago and started giving um, individuals with those particular complications um, access. So um, we at Ohio Health, I'm just waiting on their guidance. You know, we're going step by step, who and when and what. Um, and so... That's what we're, we go by. But yeah, you're absolutely right as far as vaccines um, have been around forever. And this virus is 
I think one of the worst we've ever seen in our in my lifetime or probably anybody's lifetime. Now, um, can you give the audience the information in case they need to catch up with this mobile process? How do you yes. find it? What What is the protocol for being able to get these vaccines? So you can just walk up to one of our clinics. We are out, um, like I said, Monday through Friday. We have set clinics. For example, one here, the closest one here is Directions for Youth on Kimberly Parkway near Eastland Mall. And we're there every Thursday from noon to 6. So um, you can walk in. Just try to get there before 5.30. And um, we just register you. We give you the shot. We watch you for 15 minutes. Sometimes people might need to be watched for 30 minutes. And then um, you're on your way. Then we will schedule you for your, if you get the Pfizer, it's three weeks. If you get the Moderna, it's four weeks. Um, if you need to call and find out where we are, our number is 614-566-9989. That's 614-566-9989. That is Ohio Health Community Outreach Wellness on Wheels. Thank you so much, Ms. Sana Booker. You have been so very helpful to us this morning, or uh, this afternoon. Um, folks, listen to an expert on this topic. Um, this isn't a game. This is serious business, and we want everybody to come out of this alive. So thank you so much. We've got to take a quick break on the window, and we'll be right back. And I am delighted to introduce our next guest. She's a new resident of Central Ohio, and her name is Dr. Valencia T. Walker. She is a doctor. She is also a researcher, and she is the Associate Chief Diversity and Health Equity Officer for Nationwide Children's Hospital. Her background includes um, a, a responsibility at UCLA. She is also the program chair for the American Academy of Pediatrics section on minority health equity and inclusion. She is an HBCU graduate, Florida A&M University, and of course, of course, she wears pink and green. Did you hear me, Dr. Joe? She wears pink and green. Um, she's a life member of our sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, and she went on after her residency at UT Memphis to finish a neonatology fellowship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. She has a master's in health policy from Harvard, uh, the Chan School of Public Health. So we are honored to have Dr. Walker here today, and we welcome you to the window. Thank you so much, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I am very excited to be here talking to all of you today. Well, first of all, let's talk about your experience so far with COVID at Children's Hospital. Well, fortunately for me and my area within neonatology, our biggest challenges have actually been with our staff and with our parents and family members getting sick and how that's affected our ability to care for these tiny, fragile babies. But 
for several of us, there's been, particularly when the surge prior to this was really severe, because we also have an ICU background and we understand how ventilators work and things like that, you know, many of us were able to step in and help out even with the care of adult patients when things were really critical in terms of not having enough doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and so many people you need for that critical care. Now, at Children's Hospital, is there a new department that's opened up for this COVID situation or how was Children's Hospital structured or changed as a result of this COVID dilemma? Well, as you know, Nationwide Children's, we, we have a catchment area, 34 counties in Ohio. So we take care of not just people here in Columbus and Franklin County, but throughout central and significant parts of southern Ohio as well. We have patients that come from West Virginia, from Pennsylvania. So we take care of a lot of children and a lot of people depend on us. In the sense that we have not built out like the COVID tents or things like that, but it really has strained our system in terms of the emergency room being much busier. Right now, we're dealing with a combination of illness. There's something called RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus. And it's something that makes babies and infants very sick. Well, during the winter is when we expect to see it. And with everyone wearing masks and like washing their hands and doing all the things that we've been telling people to do for years, we didn't see it. But as we started lifting the mask mandates and know people started getting out and about more and things changing we have seen an unprecedented surge in RSV for the summer so right now our pediatric intensive care unit is full and it's not only COVID patients it's also patients that are now horribly sick with RSV and we're seeing this across the country so our numbers of COVID are definitely going up and we're competing with RSV, both of which are making babies and children very sick and they're needing oxygen and they're needing to have a breathing tube. So it's been very complicated that, and I think that's the part that people have struggled with, is that so much of the focus has been on COVID, but children are still, tragically, they still get diagnosed with cancer. They're still in car accidents. They're still getting things like RSV, where you need those ICU beds as well. Dr. Joe had a number of questions. Dr. Joe, are you there? Yes, I am here. And thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Walker. I add my thanks to those of Dr. I. And I would like to, before I ask you questions about this vulnerable children's population, I'd like for our listeners to just reflect on your credentials that Dr. I read. You are brilliant. You are experienced. And we're so appreciative that you're committing your knowledge to our community. And also, as you may have heard, she's a graduate of an HBCU, which means she's African-American. So for those of us in our community who have said, gee, we have reasons to be suspicious of the healthcare community based on history, Dr. Walker is exactly what we've said we wanted, someone who has the expertise and the experience, who knows us and who is one of us. And so I'm, I'm horrified to hear what you're saying about 
our youngest and most vulnerable population. So Dr. Walker, first let me ask you, what is a neonatologist, and am I pronouncing it correctly? Let's be sure our audience understands what it is you do. I'm the doctor that takes care of any baby that requires that requires ICU care. Now, usually when people think about that, they think about premature babies. But as we're talking about today, there are so many other things that can make babies sick if they're born with like a heart defect or some you know sometimes babies are born with tumors and things like that. So that's all within my scope of, of practice. Now, to explain a little bit about my training, yes, I'm a proud graduate of FAMU, high of Seven Hills in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, but I did, did medical school, but I also did a pediatrics residency. So in order to become a neonatologist, I had to first do all my training in pediatrics, become board certified in pediatrics, and then do additional training specifically on how to care for the sickest of babies and infants. And then, of course, become board certified in that as well. And so now, my primary, where I spend most of my time as a doctor, is taking care of those sick little babies. And so in addition to your training at FAMU, if my understanding is correct, you also graduated from Emory University School of Medicine, um, and you also have a master's in, in health policy from Harvard University. And so again, your expertise is very critical, not only to the medical community as a whole, but to the community that feels that we've been um, underrepresented as it relates to healthcare practitioners who are devoted to us. Let's talk about children. Um, can, are children eligible now for the COVID vaccine? The Pfizer vaccine has received official FDA approval for anyone 16 and older. It is officially an approved vaccine. Back in May of this year, there was what we call an EUA, Emergency Use Authorization, for children 12 to 15 years old. Now, children that are under 12 there is no vaccine approved for them yet, although both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine have children in the age group of 5 to 11 um, where they're doing research to test what dose of the vaccine because obviously those children are much smaller and younger and their you know, bodies are still developing, their immune system is still developing, so they're doing trials. Um, for children 5 to 11. So right now, 16 and older, we can absolutely have a full approval of Pfizer. For 12 to 15, there's emergency use authorization for Pfizer. Then for the Moderna vaccine, it's also 16 and older. Moderna is still under emergency use authorization, similar to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So unfortunately, children under 12, there is no vaccine that's been approved for them yet. 
and there's not even a vaccine that has emergency use authorization approved for them yet. So let's talk first about those young people then who are eligible to have the vaccine. Do you know here in Central Ohio, and by the way, everything we've talked about on the show so far has primarily focused on Central Ohio, but for those of you who may be listening in other parts of the country, the types of efforts we're talking about, community efforts, medical efforts, are available in your community as well. So as it relates to children who are eligible for the vaccine, do you have any information about how successful we've been so far in getting them vaccinated? young people, our success rates are fairly low. Um, The last data I saw was from July, about a month ago, and only about 25% or so of children that were eligible to be vaccinated have been vaccinated. We still have a ways to go with getting our children protected. And so are there any valid medical reasons in general? I know that individuals have to talk to their practitioners about their individual situations, but are there any reasons in general that would make it risky or dangerous or inappropriate for children 12 and older who can get the vaccine not to get vaccinated? Absolutely. One thing that we always say, right, as healthcare professionals, if for some reason there is a component of the vaccine that you know that you have an allergy to or you've had a bad reaction to in the past, then this would obviously not be ideal. However, and particularly with the mRNA vaccines, and if we have time, I'd like to try to kind of explain to people how the mRNA vaccines work. Since those are newer, there's been a lot of questions and concern about that. Those vaccines have very little in them. Um, so a lot of the things that people have worried about in the past, like having like mercury added to it or things like that, these new vaccines don't have any of those components. So there's very little, almost you know, nothing for people to have allergic reactions to. The big thing that has come up is that for young men and boys, um, particularly those 40 and under, but particularly that eight, that adolescent young man, young boy, there has been a higher incidence of inflammation involving the heart. And for the most part, though, what's been reassuring is that people have completely recovered from it. There have been a few people that have needed more intensive care. But when we talk about that as a potential side effect, what people often don't recognize is that COVID-19, getting the infection, can cause that same problem. And when you get it because you've got the COVID-19 infection, it tends to be much more severe than if you have a reaction to the vaccine. enjoying a conversation with Dr. Walker from Nationwide Children's Hospital. Um, Dr. Walker, what about children around people that have COVID? 
Absolutely. I just wanted to kind of finish up for those maybe who are just joining the call or from where we were talking about some side effects to consider. Um, children have actually tolerated the vaccine very well. We brought up some of the inflammation with the heart, but how it's really mild relative to getting the COVID infection itself. So we don't see that as a reason not to get the vaccine. Other people have questioned like, oh, it's going to change your fertility or things like that. Women who participated in the early trials, <coughs> you know, they still got pregnant even while they were in the research trials because life continued. <coughs> and there didn't, so obviously we know it did not affect fertility in the way that people worry. There have been some reports about how the vaccine does alter women's menstrual cycles. And again, when we think about the COVID-19 infection and we've heard about people having all types of like strokes and heart attacks and blood clots and things like that, what we're learning about COVID-19 is that it doesn't just cause you to cough and have breathing problems. It infects your entire body, including your blood vessels, and it can cause bleeding problems itself. So we're continuing to learn and understand. And what we're seeing with the vaccine, though, is that any changes to like a woman's menstrual cycle tend to be temporary. Now, I'm going to get on my soapbox really quickly. One thing that we don't do is we don't do enough to support women's health. So I've talked to one of my OBGYN colleagues and they're trying to do research on this. But because we're so focused on so many other things, we don't even prioritize quote unquote regular women's health. So that's definitely an area where hopefully we'll make progress. But to your question, before it was like, oh, can children spread it? We weren't quite sure about all the details, but we know that particularly for infants and babies, which again goes back to the patient population I care most about, they're getting it from the adults that they're around. And that's been really difficult for us to see that these little infants, these sweet babies, these innocent little ones are getting sick, not because they're out trying to go to Cancun and you know, go to the concerts and things like that, but because the adults in their lives have gotten COVID and passed them on. And that's why as pediatricians, we've come out really forcefully saying like, please, please protect the kids. Because as we mentioned, there's no vaccine that's approved for them yet. So we really have to do all these other measures that we've talked about all along to help keep children safe. So, Dr. Walker, early in the days of COVID, so hopefully we'll get a chance to come back and talk about that too. In the days of COVID, so much to talk about, so much information. Early in the days of COVID, it was said, and even now there are people saying that children can't catch COVID or rarely catch COVID and can't pass it along. Is that true? That's absolutely not true. And particularly what we've seen is that as the virus has started to change, um, children are getting sicker. And we are now getting reports of young children getting very sick and needing to be in the ICU from actual COVID infection um, and children that are dying from COVID, which is different than what we saw early on. So early on, 
we saw children having a specific complication of COVID infection that was often more severe than the COVID infection itself. And so when we talk about this population, especially of under 12 years old, who aren't eligible for the vaccine, they're going back to school now. And they're going back to school in school districts and in states that have very passionate feelings about policies for and against vaccines and for and against masks. So if you in the ideal world could give advice to school districts on what you would recommend that they do in this COVID environment, what would that advice be? become a very contentious issue. What we've done is we've taken science and public health and we've politicized it. And we have used talking points and misinformation and flat out lies to divide people and keep people angry and upset about things that they should be angry and upset about. So as you mentioned, I have my master's of public health. Of course, I'm an MD, I'm a physician. But I would say, with everything that we've seen and everything that we've learned about the COVID-19 infection, this is this can be, quote-unquote, like a flu for some people, but everything that we've seen has shown us this is more severe than the flu. There are over 600,000 people that have died in a year. We deal with the flu every year, and we don't have those types of deaths. So this is clearly something different. And so I would encourage people to support wearing masks indoors. And I would support doing more with our schools. A lot of our schools need to be improved in terms of ventilation and space and proper resources and facilities just so people can wash their hands and do these types of things. Um, That, I think, and adults who can should be vaccinated, particularly those that are dealing with students. Um, you know, if you're not a contraindication, like I mentioned, an allergy or something like that, because even for our immunocompromised individuals, they're able to get the vaccine. And as we're learning now, they often need a booster um, to protect them as well. So those would be my recommendations. And we've talked about the term immunocompromised on this show before, but can you explain to us what that means and why people who are immunocompromised have been of, of particular concern during the pandemic? Often people who have developed cancer, they have to take certain medications that suppress their bodies like immune systems and things like that. So that's, when we use that word immunocompromised, it means that people who their immune system for one reason or another can't fight off things the way, quote unquote, someone whose immune system is working without any difficulty. This often comes up and this is something that absolutely affects our black community. People who need treatment for lupus often have to be on medications that suppress their immune system because their immune system is attacking them. 
And so you take medication to be like, hey, it's me, don't fight me. Um, but if you're telling your immune system not to fight you, it's like, okay, if you don't want me to fight you, I'm not going to fight anybody. And that's why we know they can often be at risk for disease. But there are other types of conditions, like certain types of arthritis, certain types of skin conditions, where it's a similar type of situation where people are, the term again we use, immunocompromised. And so we want to protect those people as well. If there's someone in your life who's fighting cancer, the last thing you want to do is make them have to deal with COVID on top of their cancer. So that's, I think, just, we have always seen ourselves as a community. We've always known that we have to look out for each other if no one else looks out for us. And despite all of the false information that's out there about vaccines and about the COVID-19 infection, if we look at the fact that we know black people are dying from this more than anyone else, then I think recognizing that, you know, we have to be for us, then we do these things to protect our community. Um, and that is wearing a mask, that is getting the vaccine and doing those types of things. And so in, in one of our previous shows where we talked about immunocompromised individuals, after the show we heard of someone whose husband had had a kidney transplant, and she wasn't aware that people who have had heart organ transplants do fall into that category, and so they did talk to their doctor about that. So please know that the good that you're doing over and above everything else that you're doing, the good that you're doing by talking to our audience here today. So to go back to the issue of schools then, if my understanding is correct, especially for children who are under the age of 12. If they go back to school in an environment where masks are optional, then they are fully exposed, if you will, to the COVID virus since they're not vaccinated, since others around them who may not wear masks may or may not be vaccinated. Is is that true? Are they at that level of exposure? You're still learning about COVID, but I've talked, like I have several, you know, within our authority, we have always been known as an organization of women that are educators and leaders. And so several of my um, sorority sisters are principals and teachers at high schools across the country. And, you know, they shared like early on, even before January of 2020, November, December, they were like, yeah, we would have like everyone with the flu and it was taking out entire classrooms and in hindsight we know that COVID was circulating in the United States well before January 2020 well before March 2020 we just didn't know what it was yet and so we've already seen this you know we just didn't collect that data at the time because we didn't know to collect it and we're seeing it now as some of these schools have started going back they're in school for a week or two before they're having to shut down because excuse me, people are getting sick with COVID. And so for people now, especially parents and students, as I've seen on TV recently, young children tend to mimic what their parents say. For parents and their children who are saying, it's my body, it's my right, it's my decision. I know what I think about that, but I don't have the credentials that you do. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, now 
this is where I'm going to get a little real. Um, as we know, racism is alive and well in this country. There's a quote from Malcolm X that, you know, racism is like a Cadillac. A new model comes out every year. <laughs> so we may not still have signs that say, you know, colored water fountain, um, white only water fountain. But we have Flint, Michigan, where they made sure that the contaminated water went to either poor or black and brown folks. They didn't, and they made sure it didn't go to other communities. And in this case, what is happening is that people who are hateful, people who are racist, are taking these talking points that have traditionally been used by those of us that want to fight against oppression and fight against lack of freedom and equality. And they're stealing those talking points and using them to try to justify their their hate and their ignorance. So we use the term, my body, my choice, it has been mostly around the issue of abortion. Abortion is a very contentious issue, but it's also a very personal issue. If you get pregnant, you can't contaminate someone else into being pregnant. If I'm pregnant, I can't make you pregnant just because I'm pregnant. So the my body, my choice falls apart when we're talking about an infectious disease that can be spread from person to person, school classroom to school classroom, city to city, state to state, literally spread across the world. This is not a my choice, my body issue. Like I said, we have to look out for our own community. And when we see people twisting words around and twisting phrases around, that's gonna lead to us being sicker than we already and the stuff we have to deal with. We wanna hear your oh, final thoughts. No, I want we were listening. So, so I just wanted to say that we have to look out for each other. We have to pay attention to what the real facts are and not just the memes and the, you know, YouTube videos where it's just some random person saying, well, I think this and I think that. And so we have to protect our loved ones that are on dialysis, that have had a kidney transplant, that have had a heart transplant. Um, And vaccines are not new. We do need to wrap up now, and I'm so sorry we don't have more time for all this great information. My brief soapbox is that we, vaccines are not new. I can remember decades ago standing in line to take the polio vaccine. I can remember my son taking the MMR vaccine. Required vaccines are not new and they're needed in a civilized society. And also previous guests have shared with us that the vaccine has been tested among pregnant women and they're safer and as a general, in a general sense, with it than without it. Dr. I am gonna turn this back over to you to wrap this up to thank our wonderful guests today. Continue talking with you, but we are out of time, but I've gotta ask you this. I really just wanna hold on to you and ask 
questions the rest of the afternoon, but it seems like we got our arms around COVID and here came Delta. Yes. Is, is that, could that be a continuum here? We could figure out one and here comes another one? Oh my gosh, we don't have enough time to do the science okay. and the public health around why Delta happened. Okay. Um, but think about it, the, the virus wants to survive. So it's like, oh, y'all trying to switch it up on me? Okay, well, I'm going to switch it up on you. And that's why we have to remain vigilant. I just want to encourage everyone, doctors are not perfect. Scientists are not perfect. We are human. This is something new for all of us. We're learning as we go. But we promise we care deeply about you. We want you well. And there are things we know we can do with vaccines, with washing hands, with wearing a mask, with this physical distancing. You don't have to shut your life down. But if we're going to really change the world for the better, we need healthy, alive people to do it. Don't let people talk you into sickness and death out of fear and misinformation. Thank so. you so, so, so much, Dr. Walker. Sora, we just appreciate you so much. And we may ask you to come back and talk to us sometime. Um, there's so, so much to talk about. It really is. Thank you, Dr. Joe, and I hope you're continuing your um, recovery from your um, uh, illness. And we thank our audience for coming on to listen to this important information on the window. Enjoy your week, and thank you for listening. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.